Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware. Mean O Line Media presents Black Arm of the Law. Welcome to Black Arm of the Law podcast, where each week we examine the most pressing issues in the criminal legal system. I'm your host. Dr. Rochelle Brackney, also known as Chief B. As we settle into today's show, don't forget to subscribe, follow, rate, and comment for us on Twitter, Instagram, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts, Apple, iHeartRadio, etc. So let's jump into it. My guest today um, is, is, is famous in many arenas, and I say that um, intentionally and sarcastically. He is the newly appointed chief of police in the city of Pittsburgh. I'd like to welcome my guest, Chief Larry Scarano, and friend, um, and and all the other things. Hello, Chief. Welcome. Hello, Chief B. How are you? I am great. I am great. You know, you've been in Pittsburgh for four months. Um, this is a homecoming of sorts for you. How did you find yourself yeah. back home? Uh, I, some ask me that question often, <laughs> and you know, it's, it's full circle opportunity. I, I was in Dallas. I thought maybe I was going to be done with law enforcement and then the Pittsburgh opportunity presented itself and it was an opportunity to not only come home, but come back to the department that I love the department, the actual only adult job I had, uh, I, I got hired as a teen. So it was, you know, just a full circle opportunity. And I thought, you know, in, uh, inflection point in law enforcement today in the city that I love with people I loved and enjoyed working with that, that I could do some good here and, and maybe, maybe impact the organization in a way that I wanted it impacted when I worked for it the first time. So, so to walk me through your career in Pittsburgh first, um, and then we're going to ask about some of your other careers that you have, because you have a lot of um, balls that you juggle in the air at all times. So, Walk me through Pittsburgh about, you know, I know locally that you're from Manesson. Um, shout out to that community. And, you know, it's just outside of Pittsburgh, but it's very similar. And it. it is a blue working collar class community, like many of the different um, areas of Pittsburgh. So as a young person, you said as a teen, um, I'm, I'm guessing that was 19 is when you were hired um, or, or very young adult. How did you start with the Pittsburgh Bureau of Police and, and why policing? Yeah, so I guess maybe the, the why was, you know, I watched a lot of my friends. I had a friend that committed suicide at a young age at, at 18. I had a few friends that started to uh, deal in the street pharmaceutical trade. Uh, and I watched my community. Medicine was is very similar to Pittsburgh, uh, blue collar, working class city. And I watched a lot of my close friends make choices and decisions that I that that I otherwise, without influence, I could have very well made the same. Uh, but I had a mentor that what they took a liking to me when I was like 14, and and it was a police officer, a local police officer, and I've always had an affinity toward the profession 
just based on his engagement and interest in some kid he never met. Uh, so that's what prompted, or that's what I guess created that interest in the profession generally. So then Pittsburgh was the, it was a big city. Uh, I wanted to be in urban policing. I wanted to do and have opportunities to do different things. Uh, my mentor had encouraged me to go to a larger city. Uh, hey, don't be just a patrolman. Go think of places where you can be an investigator, where you can work in canine, maybe, uh, be supervisor, maybe one day be the chief. I was like, huh, that's, and Pittsburgh offered all of those opportunities. Uh, so that's how I ended up here. And I started, I started the application process when I was 19, I got hired and I started the academy. I turned 20. Uh, so I was one of the younger people in our, our police academy in 1995. And, and so from there, then, then my career started and I, you know, every, about every two years, I, I moved within the within the bureau, uh, so it offered that level of diversity that I don't think I would have gotten in a lot of other places, uh, especially in in more local jurisdiction type of policing in the boroughs or townships. It's certainly not in Manesson where I grew up. Uh, so that that's it was the the opportunity was what drew me to this city. So I'm going to joke you, Bray, um, and the reason I'm going to joke you is you're hired at 20 to enforce laws to carry a gun that you're not even legally old enough to get an application to own a weapon. And you, you can't drink alcohol. You're not even supposed to be in places where alcohol is served after certain hours. Like if you were out at the club, they would have had to put one of those little bands on your wrist um, for you to even be in that said you couldn't consume alcohol. But you were in this position that literally can make the decision to take someone's life. Um, how, did, how did that resonate with your you and your friends? Or, you know, they had to get a special application for you to even get a weapon. Right. So the running joke was my mom owned my gun. And if, and if I got grounded, she would take my gun and I wouldn't be able to come to work. So that was, that was always, so when you say, yeah, you want to clown me, like that was always, like people found great, great joy in teasing me about being so young. And, and but, you know, so I, and you know, I, I, I take, I, I would enjoy it. And I, I, even now I speak about it because of the youthfulness in which I enjoyed, which, when, which I joined this profession. So, uh, but, but then like real, in real short order, you understand and the, gravity and magnitude of this role uh, right and, and the, the the power in which this profession has in our community and and, and so that responsibility to to represent my family in, in a manner that otherwise hadn't been right uh was it it, it, it was a heavy it weighed on my shoulders and it but it also in, in a really good way not an overwhelming way but in a way that like I I was going to take this torch and, and be be better than maybe some of my friends and not better than like in that type of way, but like not make those life decisions and, and escape the the stigma of the valley and, and be successful. And more importantly, when I remember standing in the hallways of the training academy, and I was like, at one day, I tell my, one of my coworkers today, well, one day I'm going to be the chief. And I really believe that. So that as young as I was, like, there was a maturity to, to me and more importantly, the, the magnitude of what we do and how we do it and who we do it for set was was front and center in, in all of my thoughts as I went through my career. 
So most officers don't like change. As a matter of fact, they abhor it, right? If you can just lead things, well, we, there's the running joke, right? The two things officers don't like, change and, and things staying the same, right? So for you, you said you changed positions or assignments almost every two years. How was that a benefit to you or was it a, a challenge for you? Um, as you think about it, you know, um, in the rear view mirror of your career, how did that help or, or, or hinder your growth? You know, I, for me, it, I believe it, like fast forward to today, it made me a very dynamic chief because there were very few things that I wasn't part, that I didn't participate in directly and or oversaw. So there were very few parts of our profession. Actually, there aren't any in our profession that I haven't had some meaningful engagement or role in. So I continue to grow. I can. And so I, these opportunities for me made me more well-rounded uh, from even things I think of like when I went to internal affairs. Well, the people think of that position as like the turn code in policing, right? Or it's a less desirable position. Well, I'll be quite honest, it's exactly the opposite. It gives you insight into what is happening in an organization that oftentimes you wouldn't ever be aware of. Uh, the processes of complaints, the way in which community sees police, right? It, from the way in which our complaints are filed to how we adjudicate discipline against officers for misconduct. Because, you know, when you're out in the field, I think when you're in the patrol car, like you see the best in your brothers and sisters and you don't believe the things you don't see. And just because my partner wasn't behaving in a, in a manner that was in conflict with our policies or our morals, other officers were, and I was getting to see that. And so it just gives me like full reflection of what the police department was. Then when I went to canine and then to sex crimes and then to violent crime, like you get to see and become so well-rounded, so well-versed in every aspect of this profession that you ultimately, when coming back to lead it, can speak from a position of authority, can speak from a position of experience, which then gives you the credibility for the officers that don't know you. Right. And, and you know what? It's important. I was um, thinking about it much like yourself. I, the longest stint I stayed any one place in my 31 years was five years, five to six years. And it was over on the north side. Um, as a matter of fact, when I used to work with you, um, I went back to there with there several times. And the gift that I was given um, is the only place I did not work was internal affairs. But I worked every other position, every other rank, almost every zone in the city of Pittsburgh. And when I say every position, whether it was crime analysis, the warrant office, where people did not want to go, overseeing our municipal, um, our administration and, and municipal court, people didn't want to go to those places, right? I was in charge of the training academy and the different special operations and major crimes. Um, as a matter of fact, I took your office, if I'm correct. <laughs> um, and he did not leave his setup of his Keurig and his Keurig stuff there for me. He rolled with those two, just note to sell um, from everyone else. But you know what, from what I hear you saying is that you took all of these, what might be seen challenges to learn something of it so you could get a much more global picture of the of the the workforce there um and not just this myopic one where you're just working in one small area and only can see it through those yeah that's correct i think you know it, it gives you like that level of organizational diversity that 
you otherwise would, or otherwise a lot of people don't get the opportunity to do. Uh, it's, it's kind of funny. I, no one ever told me no when I thought, or when I asked to go to another unit, it's like, oh, sure. And, and, but you know, every time I would interview for one of these different roles, I, my, my retort to, Hey, you're moving again. You think you want to stay another year? I said, is the unit I left better today than when I got there? And if you can say yes, then allow me to advance and move on. If you say no, then I got work to do. And I'll remain there until it is. And and so that was like that was always my my retort when when somebody challenged the movement or the amount of movement is, hey, when I'm here, it's going to be better than when I leave. So let me move on to the next and take that challenge to this next unit, this next assignment. Yeah. So so you've had a diversity of um, assignments and I'm going I'm to have two thoughts here and then we can talk to both. Uh, one of them, um, diversity of assignments, has it been influenced by the fact that, you know, the diversity of who Chief Scarado is? Like, if I was to check boxes, you hit a lot of, as I say, others. Like, I'm an other in so many different categories, but you do as well. Talk to me about how um, you're other as a race, um, you're other as your sexual orientation, your other as your philosophies around DEI, diversity, equity, and I, I don't even use inclusion. I use welcoming and belonging in, in the space that you're at. How have those others um, shaped the work that you do both here and the work that you tried to do in Fort Lauderdale as the chief there? For my audience, he was the chief in Fort Lauderdale as well, uh, holding it down in Florida. Under that governorship is another podcast altogether. Yeah. So, so you know, other, other whether it's my my parents for your viewing or for your listening audience, it, my mother was was white and my father was black, uh, and and I was raised in in that household. Um, my mom separated from my stepdad when I was thirteen and raised me into my adulthood. So, but the other in, in that regard show and provided me with just different shared experiences, right? I remember growing up as a kid, and I went to Catholic school. My sister and I were the only two brown kids in the school uh, and, and, and assimilating in that environment. But, but you know, we were never, I don't think we were ever treated as outcasts. We were really well received, even some would say accepted, right? And, and, in that I just, I have my shared experiences from the white community and my shared experience from the black community were, were unique, but they shaped like how I viewed the world. And then I see like the, my experience, my experience not be the same as some of my black friends experience with policing. Right. And, and so I, I think when I, as I grew up and noting those differences, uh, it was it, it, it shaped how I knew I wanted our profession to be that that we should have the same same shared experiences that it shouldn't be different based on look I if again most of your viewing your listening audience doesn't see me but I present as very white and my last name Scarado so so I was I was treated a lot differently than my sister who presents much more black and her last name her father's last name is Cook. Right. So even in our household, I, our shared experiences were a little different in in the community space. 
So just knowing that I want our profession to be different and, and that those relationships should be different with policing and community. Uh, then I think about like sexuality, like being when being in a profession. I remember, you know, talking to a young kid, probably my that 18, 19 year version of me, but I'm a little older now and I just came out and him saying, can I, is it even legal for me to be the police? Like thinking that there's a law against being gay and a cop. But then I have to reflect back to how terrified I was about being out because who I love could cost me the profession that I love. Right. And, and, but, but then to understand like ensuring or ushering this young man in, in his most formidable years, like, no, like this profession is welcoming the fears that I had. And I, and I feel very blessed being a member of the Peace Bureau of Police is the fears that I had didn't exist when I came out. And, and so that I could say with confidence, at least in this police department, that your sexuality, the person who you love won't impact or influence the profession that you love if you do it right. Uh, so I think those shared experiences like, take me to Florida. And, and I get there and I think, well, it's it was so easy to have these conversations in Pittsburgh, whether it's the, uh, whether it's the intersection on race and gender and or sexuality. So why wouldn't it be just as easy there? And then lo and behold, I was absolutely incorrect in my assessment. And, and, and in, in Florida, you can even see minority officers, whether it was a sexual minority, gender minority, racial minority, like they also, they didn't see things the same way because their shared experiences weren't the same. A lot of them assimilated to the organization and its norms. And those norms were very different from my experience in Pittsburgh and my life experiences uh, generally. So it was it was very, very challenging because I found myself fighting with people that I would think would be vision and value aligned with me because we came from the same background about what I thought was obviously the right thing to do for our profession and for our community. And, and for people who don't know, uh, Chief Scarato was the chief in Fort Lauderdale and his approach to it was when all things are equal, right? We want a community or a police department, which everyone is saying that reflects the community. And when you were actively promoting um, those individuals on merit, right? They 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 belong there. It was their their scores, their interview processes, their rankings, um, and then just like we consider other outside activities, we you know we look at someone's resume and say, oh, they do volunteer work, right? But we also look at other people's residencies and say, hey, they they're active, you know, in the LGBTIAQ plus community, right? And that they are liaison there. But when you really tried to highlight those individuals and you were promoting them and highlighting the diversity of your promotion, you got pushback. As a matter of fact, four officers, if I'm correct, three white and one Hispanic male, I'm guessing who identified as white Hispanic, um, said, you know what, they were discriminated against because out of the, what, 14 people you promoted, um, more than eight of them, I believe, were white males or white and then the other ones were six or so were diversity or diversity appointments they were like you're being a racist this is reverse racism and you got to go waiting on a tax return hopefully it ends up in your hands 
Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash aware. I was called an international racist, as a matter of fact. Uh, so, so that, you know, when you talk, and I remember sitting in, and it's part of the lawsuit, so this is nothing that's not been disclosed. I remember sitting in the city manager's office and the city attorney saying, you can do it, but don't talk about it. And and I immediately responded, isn't that how supremacy has existed in this country for for decades? And especially in this profession, they've done it and not talked about it. I said, we're not. And I was never suggesting that we promote less qualified people above those more qualified that happen to be white. The promotion promotional candidates chosen in Fort Lauderdale were exceptionally qualified. The the black man I promoted to captain was the only candidate with a master's degree, uh, community involved, community engaged, and had no discipline, reputation stellar, respect amongst his peers, respect amongst those that worked for him, respected outside of the department. And he was going to be the challenge that they took against the, I guess what they would say, his, his equally competent peer that was Caucasian. There was, there was, there was no, it wasn't even, the, the comparison wasn't even fair. That's how much better qualified he was. But because right. he was black, but because he was black, it, it, it lessened his competency. It lessened all of those qualifications. Right, right. I, I remember how many times um, when I was in Charlottesville, I was called the affirmative action, you know, quota hired, you know, turned desk jockey, right? And when I looked at everyone who interviewed that, they're like, she took the job of well-qualified white men. And when we, when I took the job, I was the only one that held a doctorate and a master's, right? And of course my bachelor's. I'm the only one who had been a previous chief somewhere else, had retired from a major city, had overseen, as you know, all of these other things, major events like the G20, inaugurations in D.C., et cetera. But I was the quota hire, right? I was the affirmative action, less qualified quota hire. So oftentimes, you know, that is the response when all things being equal and there isn't anything else you got. If that's all you got, then I'm like you. If that's the hill you want to die on, I know is which is one of your favorite sayings, that's the hill you want to die on. Then go ahead. Um, but so now you've come to Pittsburgh. And in Pittsburgh, as a matter of fact, um, one of the articles that I was reading up on you. So beyond us being, um, you know, colleagues, you know, I still have to creep on all the social medias and all of the things so that as a guest, I get to talk about that. But one of you were saying... Um, is that another goal is for the Bureau to diversify its rank and file. Black Pittsburghers make up about 23% of the city's population, but only about 11% of its workforce. And that was a 2021 study. Interestingly enough, there was another one that was national and said the more white departments are, the more likely they're to use excessive force and to not connect well with community. Pittsburgh was named as one of those top five 
where 90% of the department is white. Nine out of every 10 officers is white. Um, how do you then go about recruiting into an institution that hasn't necessarily been welcoming for someone who doesn't look like their typical white male officer? And in Pittsburgh, where there's challenges and tensions around the police and over-policing, as studies have come out and said, you know, Pittsburgh is no different than anywhere else. So you just got there. So this is an inheritance, not your legacy, right? This is your inheritance. Um, how do you recruit somebody who looks like you, who, you know, barely turned in 20? Um, I was barely 21 when I was hired. How do you say, come on in this place and you're going to be welcomed here? You belong here. What's your strategy? So, so first and foremost, like you have, we haven't had a recruiting strategy. The, 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 the way in which we are is, is, is the fault of leadership within this organization over the last five to seven or so years, right? That there was no active recruiting strategy in marginalized communities, specifically the black community, uh, the LGBTQ community. There, there just wasn't those efforts. And, and so I, I am now the spokesperson for diversity in that regard, especially in the recruiting space. So that we're developing a responsible recruiting strategy that goes to community. The, the true reality is people are like, well, it'll just happen organically. It doesn't happen organically in a profession that hasn't historically been welcoming to marginalized communities. So we have to be be intentional. I, whatever the next word is beyond intentional is, is the behaviors and the steps that we have to take to create inroads where they didn't exist and they're not happening naturally. So going to community, partnering with Boys and Girls Club, we're going to partner in, in this instance with Westinghouse CTE and, and, and bringing on the young people 18 to 20 years old and hopefully getting the budget approval to do just that, to mentor and hire in roles that aren't police officers, but roles that are within the police department. And, and now that we can then create a, a true uh, true recruitment process, true, true recruitment strategy that focuses on inner city young people in, in all of these areas where we're deficient, where we, we, we lack diversity. Uh, and when we do that, then it's that messaging, that marketing campaign that Pittsburgh is a welcoming, Pittsburgh Bureau of Police is a welcoming police department. And we're seeking to be reflective of our community. And here's like, don't listen to me say it, watch me do it. And here are the efforts and attempts that we're making to ensure that we are engaging in a very different way, uh, that we have created jobs for, for members of our community that are, they have the values and the moral compass of the city. And, and that, that's the police department we want to be as well. And, and in that, I think we have the opportunity to do something very different, to create pipeline, to create a, attraction for the black community, for the LGBTQ community. I mean, we're really, I think oftentimes we're really good with women and specifically white women and obviously white men by the nature of the, the statistics, but we're not so, we're, we're, we're doing horribly poor in those other spaces. So understanding that, acknowledging it, and then taking action to correct it. So, you know what, I agree. There is another word beyond intentional, and the word I use is surgical. We need to be surgical. Like, you don't ever have a doctor who's about to operate and says, I'm going to be intentional about the area that I'm going to operate. They're, they're precision, and it's surgical, right? It's laser-focused. Um, and that's how you get things um, done. And again, the budget 
to be able to do that. That's another topic that I'll bring you on for. Um, but even with the diversity strategy, we know as in Memphis, you know, black male officers used excessive force um, and killed another black male, right? Um, there have been some recent hues and cries of even in Pittsburgh about uses of excessive force, right? And what is appropriate and says, you know what? Even with diversity, that's not going to keep you from having these type of incidents. And these are no longer one-offs, right? We've got enough of them that across the nation that these are trending. Something about the institution that corrupts the individual regardless of the demographic of the individual. So as part of your recruitment strategy, um, how is it that you ensure that, you know, that they, the moral compass, the vision and values um, are aligned? Are there any tools that you're using for screening that are different than possibly any other places um, out there? No, I am not in the moment. And what I would say, like just being fully transparent is that this is evolving. And, and so that I am seeking, no, I am seeking information from others outside of the walls of the Pittsburgh Bureau of Police to start developing this recruiting strategy. What are national best practices? What are other cities doing and having success in this space? So I can tell you in the moment that I don't have, I, I know the mindset of who I look for when I'm reviewing candidates for selection, right? I, I want, I, I, I said, like, I want to, we will have to, and we must, we talk about it, but never do it, get away from warrior mentality and find guardians to employ and, and then highlight those individuals and their accomplishments. I want to volunteer somebody that's a part of the Boys and Girls Club versus somebody that was number one in the Rifle Club, right? And, and showing that they have true community engagement and we should prioritize those individuals for hire because those are the type of individuals that we want within our walls, which we want to employ, which we want to be a part of this police department and our profession, so therefore that they can be guardians within our communities, right? We, we just got to get away from, oh, the warrior mentality, but we talk about guardians, but then we continue to hire maybe the same mindset, right? And, and then think that the organization is going to be able to change that individual. And then, we're in, then when these instances occur, it, it's quite obvious that the organization doesn't. And, and, and so our actions have to be aligned with our, our words and, and our thoughts and the values of a police department. Oftentimes, I think people that get to our seat, that we can say it, but then we're not then actually, we're not actually operationalizing it in a way that is influential across the organization. Yeah, you're right. As I tell people is um, when it comes to recruiting, don't look for that candidate at a four-year uh, college career fair or some job fair and things like that. When I was looking for my candidates, you know, my best candidates, I set up recruiting on a Sunday, go to IHOP after church. You're gonna find a diverse amount of candidates. Go to Red Lobster, go to Golden Corral. Um, you're gonna find some black folks after church. Matter of fact, go to the church and when they're coming out, right? Cause you then get some ideas. Go to the childcare centers. When people are dropping off people off, people need good benefits, they need good monies and things like that. I'm gonna ask you one last question. Um, and then I'm gonna let you go because Chief, I know you're busy and the fact that you took out some time to spend it with me in this way is is important. So um I'm gonna suggest as a recruitment strategy for you, um, and tell us about it is you have another role in which you get to be the boss as well. Um, and they don't call you Chief Scarado. 
they call you Ref Scarado, or I don't even know what the real name is because I've not been in that area. But you're an NCAA basketball ref. And do you do Big Ten or whatever it's called? My primary conference is the Big Ten and the Pac-12. So how did that happen? And you know, it was I, that career paralleled policing. And, and I got into it when I was a 14-year-old kid as a way to make money. I was making more money on the weekend ref and adult league than my mom was making in a week at work. Uh, and, and so, but I, I just love being involved in the sport and I love being involved in that way. And, and, but, and the personalities are very parallel as well. Like policing and officiating, I say are, are almost the same human being. Like we are, we are the enforcement arm of the legislative bodies and ours is the laws from, from the state or the Commonwealth there and in officiating it's from the NCAA board of directors and the rules committee. And we're dealing with people with high emotion and low reasoning skills. And you tell me if that's not the domestic violence call versus the Michigan State, Ohio State game, right? And the participants in either. So very similar. And and I often thought like if you could be a really if you were a really good cop, you'd be a really good referee. If you were a really good referee, you'd be a really good cop. And I was blessed to be able to do both. Uh twenty twenty one, I went to the final four, uh and and then becoming the chief of police. And like how many people could say such a thing? So it's super cool that I've been and given the opportunity to live in both worlds simultaneously, and that doesn't exist for a lot of people. Well, you know, if that's not a recruiting advertisement, um, we can get, you know, some of them say, hey, listen, you get into the academy, we bring in these individuals. Um, but I also think that you, um, from our conversations, have even had that, how do you blend the two that you've actually thought about and have started possibly a foundation for um introducing young inner city kids to the entire referee and I'm air quote game um, so that they can travel the, 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 you know, literally the States make great money, be around the sport that they love. Um, and my understanding is you've actually started a foundation for this or you're considering um, one as well. Yeah. Working. I, I got a couple of philanthropic uh, ventures, venture capitalists behind this is called refs and rooks. And so we're, we're right now in the formation of it. And what I envision is our youngest officers, that's the Rooks part, and our young people in community, right? So that's refs and Rooks and teaching them together, partnering them together to watch their careers grow together and, and using officiating as the common ground. And so that our newest officer is working with our youngest person in the community. The goal is, the goal would be that they, they start officiating together some will then become police officers. Some won't, but the relationship that they build with refs and rooks is 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 should be life lasting, and in a, in a real cool way that that like grows life skills, but exposes some of my youngest officers to a community that otherwise they wouldn't engage with in in a positive encounter in in a coaching environment, a learning environment. And, and that they grow together and that on, oh, on top of that, you can make an exceptional life-changing amount of money, right? On the basketball side and even it, look, today's salaries in policing, even on the policing side, but that that's, that's that community police partnership that I envision in, a, in using basketball officiating as, as the, the vehicle or the platform to get there. So, um, you know what? I want to give a huge shout out and thank you to my friend, um, Chief Larry Scarado of the Pittsburgh Bureau of Police. 
referee NCAA top 10 ref, uh, Larry Scarato. A thank you um, to our guests. As I reflect on this week's interview and come to my final conclusions for the end of shift report, the one thing I was struck by was Chief Scarato's vulnerability and honesty, um, particularly about a field that is not welcoming of anyone who is an other, who has been an institution that has wielded its supremacy and its um, anger towards Black community, particularly, you know, Black gay community and transgender community. And for someone to be brave enough to take over as the chief of police and openly say as a multi-ethnic biracial person that this work means so much to them and um, that he was able to stay in the profession for no other reason, that he didn't want to jeopardize who I love could cost me the profession I love. Who I love could possibly um, cost me the profession that I love. And unfortunately, in today's society, who we love, who we are, who we decide to be, the values we hold could often keep us from the profession of policing and law enforcement because it will close its doors to someone who is different. Um, I am struck by that. I will sit with that for a while. And I am blessed to have been able to be a part of that conversation. To our audience, thank you for listening. And please tell someone about the show. Don't forget to subscribe, follow, rate, and comment on Twitter, Instagram, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. This is the end of my shift. I am 1042. I will catch you next week. The Black Arm of the Law podcast is hosted by Rashal Brackney Wheelock. Executive producers Ken Johnson, Steve Tompkins, and Rashal Brackney Wheelock. Find Black Arm of the Law on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Amazon Music, Spotify, the Mean Old Line Media app, or where you get your podcast. Follow Black Arm of the Law at BLK Arm of the Law on IG and X. Follow the Mean O-Line Media Podcast Network on IG at Mean O-Line Media. Get the Mean O-Line Media app in the App Store and Google Play for more great podcasts. The Black Arm of the Law Podcast is a Mean O-Line Media production. You've worked hard for what you have. Your money, your assets, your 401k, and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com aware. Terms apply.